Let us go to the Lord again in prayer. Our gracious, lovingly, Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can come to You and call You our Father, believing that we can trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing in us or about us or anything that we have ever done or can ever do that will cause us to be accepted in your sight. It is only by thy sovereign grace that you chose us in Christ Jesus before the world was, that by the divine operation of your Holy Spirit, you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You sent the gospel unto us to turn us away from that darkness unto the light. And we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Let us never be guilty of treating the gospel in such a way that we neglect you and neglect living as it is that you would have us to live because of the righteousness of Christ. Let us never be bewitched by false teaching. May we never compromise the gospel. And we pray, our God, that we would not try to invent or set up some gospel of our own makings. Because there is only one gospel. Just as the scriptures teach, there are God's many and Lord's many, we know that there's only one Lord and one God. And that is our gracious Father and Christ Jesus, thy darling Son. And yet there are many Gospels that are preached. But there's only one that is true and genuine. And everything else is false and a perversion. So help us to have our eyes and hearts and minds opened to the truth of the gospel and give us an understanding and strength to maintain our faithfulness unto the gospel of God. We pray, our God, that you would bless us now as we continue in this worship. In Jesus' name, amen. We will go to Galatians chapter 3 today. I'm going to continue our study in this book. As we previously stated, 
Paul's defense of his ministry was taken up in chapter 1 and runs through chapter 2. And this chapter opens with this continuation of his defense. We have to remember that when the scriptures were written, there were no chapters and verses. And so we keep that in mind. Also, we, remember, we must keep in mind that the congregations to whom Paul was writing were in the region of Galatia. And we are thankful for the tools that were added and given to us by the translators that we can follow along a lot easier. Also, we stated in our studies in chapter 1 that we're not going to try to uh, document the times and the chronology that's given by Paul. He talks about different times and things of that nature that he 14 years in one place, 3 years in another, and, and so on. And, but uh, there are many, many good men have... Uh, given much attention to chronologizing the uh, life of the Apostle Paul and when some of these things took place and uh, Paul I mean, and they themselves differ. And so it, there's, and so we're not going to try to do that. <clears throat> However, regardless of the time frame, the inspiration of the text, is still just as valid and there's no compromise in it whatsoever. Regarding this chapter, I thought John Gill had a good summary of it, which I'll read. He said, In this chapter the Apostle reproves the Galatians for their disobedience to the Gospel and departure from it. It also confirms the doctrine of justification by faith by various arguments. And it shows the use of the law and the abrogation of the law and makes mention of several privileges that belong to believers. I thought that was a good summary of this. I'm going to read the chapter and then we'll come back and devote our time to the first six verses. And I doubt that we'll get through the first six verses today or at least this morning. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. This only would I learn of you, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth, ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham? And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. 
But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be not man's covenant, Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under schoolmaster. For ye, are, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. <coughs> there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if it be Christ, excuse me, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now back in verses 1 through 6. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth the Spirit, uh, ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, Doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now we'll say more about this, but I hope that you have not forgotten what we pointed out in chapter 2 with regarding to faith and law that it was the principle of faith or the law of faith uh, rather than the law of works. And there's a difference in the two principles. And 
we're going to see that the New Testament economy is also designated by this principle of Christ or the principle of the seed or the principle of the Spirit. And we need to keep that in mind as we go through not only this chapter, but as we have seen in previous in the previous chapter specifically, and we shall see as we continue on through the book. Foolish Galatians. The Greek word for foolish in this place is has the meaning of being unintelligent or without understanding. We might say in our day and age, ignorance. There's a Greek word that means to comprehend, to perceive, to think, to understand. And this Greek word has the alpha privative in front of it, which would be the opposite of that. In our English word, we have the word go. But when you say ago, it's the opposite of it. Well, got the alpha privative on it. And so we see that in uh, many words throughout even our English language. You have the word theistic, which has the idea of God. Theism, God. Atheistic, the alpha privative on it, has the idea of the person believes there is no God. So this alpha privative that's in the Greek language it shouldn't be nothing new to us even in the English language. But he, when he says the foolish Galatians here, he's not uh, using the same word where Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hell fire. This is, has the idea of one that is somewhat uh, uh, unwise or not understanding. In fact, let's look at this. It's only used six times, but let's look at it. Uh, first of all, in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We won't read a lot here, but if you remember that this was when after the crucifixion of Christ and there were two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes along and their, their eyes were holding, the Scripture says, that they should not uh, recognize who he, that He was. Later on, he opened their eyes where they could recognize him, but uh, they were talking about the death of Christ and so on, and Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And they said, well, where have you been? Haven't you heard what uh, took place in Jerusalem three days ago? And, and we thought that this man that they crucified, we thought he was the Messiah. But then notice in verse 25. Then he, that is Jesus, said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How would you like to have heard that sermon? Where Christ pointed out the whole of the Old Testament. But he, tell, he calls them fools. Not that they were uh, 
the fool as in Proverbs or the fool uh, of one being worthless. But here they didn't understand. They didn't comprehend what all was taking place. Next place is used is in Romans chapter 1 where it is talking about uh, people in a negative sense more so. Romans chapter 1 verse 14 I am a debtor to the Greek and to the barbarians both to the wise and to the unwise. The unwise. And then it's in Galatians in our third chapter. Where he calls them foolish in verse 1 and in verse 3. We'll come back to that. But let's go on to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter six in verse nine. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And then in Titus three. Verse 3, For we ourselves also were sometime foolish, disobedient, and so on. So here Paul is talking in Galatians about these Galatians that had had the gospel preached unto them, which we will see uh, more clearly as we go forward. Even in verse in, in this first verse, he said, Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And we also remember back in chapter 1 of this book of Galatians, Paul said there's only one gospel. And if you have any other, if anybody comes along preaching another gospel to you than what I've already preached to you, let him be accursed. So they had already heard the truth of the gospel preached. And yet here they are being turned away by these Judaizers being tempted to go back to the law service. Again, I'll uh, indulge on your patience uh, reading a quote from John Gill regarding this verse. Rather lengthy, but I think his, he said it very well. Referring not to any national character. In other words, he wasn't saying that uh, these Galatians, because they were Galatians, they were just foolish people as he's going to go ahead and say here, where Paul said that the Cretes, you remember when Paul said, told Titus he left him in Crete to set the things in order, and their own poet said that the Cretans are always liars. So, in other words, he's not saying that the Galatians are always foolish kind of people that are just foolish people. This is what Gil is saying. Referring not to any national character, as some have thought, by which they were distinguished from others for their rudeness and knowledge, their ignorance and folly, as the Cretans for their lying, etc. Nor to their former state in unregeneracy, it being common to all men, to God's elect themselves before conversion, as we read in Titus, uh, to be foolish in a moral and spiritual sense but to their present stupidity about the article of justification. 
it being an instance of most egregious, can get my tongue around that word, egregious folly to leave Christ for Moses, the gospel for the law, the doctrine of free justification by the righteousness of Christ, which brings such uh, so much uh, solid peace and comfort with it for the doctrine of justification by the works of the law, which naturally leads to bondage. Now this was said not rashly, nor in anger, or to propose to reproach and provoke, and so not to all contrary, in like manner as Christ said to his disciples, O foolish and slow of heart to believe. So in Luke, which we read. So the apostle here, as pitying the Galatians, grieved for them as one surprised and astonished that every people of such light that had had the gospel so clearly preached to them should ever give into such a notion. And if you'll notice in verse 15 of this chapter, Paul calls these foolish Galatians what? Brethren. Brethren. And this shows that Paul had a love for them. He wasn't just coming down on them, you bunch of fools. He wasn't doing that. He was kindly and lovingly rebuking them as a gentle father. And therefore, when it's, he, the, we want to keep in mind that this, when he talks and calls them foolish, he, it's not a harsh condemnation to them. It's not, like I said, he's not just coming down on them with both feet. But it's like a loving father. You're just, you're acting foolish. You're being foolish in, in this. And then, notice what he says, who hath bewitched you? This Greek word bewitched has the idea to fascinate one. To malign. It's only found here in the Scriptures. And again, I like, I want to read a quote from Gill about this. These deceitful workers who had transformed themselves into the apostles of Christ, as Satan sometimes transforms himself into an angel of light, had set this doctrine in a false light before them, thereby to corrupt their minds from the simplicity that is in Christ. Though the apostle reproves the Galatians for their folly and weakness in giving in so easily to such de deceptions, now note this, yet he imputes the chief fault unto and lays the greatest blame on the false teachers whom he represents as sorcerers, enchanters, and their doctrine, particularly that of justification by works as witchcraft, being pleasing to men and gratifying of culture a carnal reason, and operating as a charm upon the pride of human nature. It's like when Saul, Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, he said to obey, that is to obey the truth, is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than the fat of rams. For legal institutions 
or rebellion against in opposition to the doctrines of the gospel and especially to this of justification by the righteousness of Christ which is the sin of witchcraft. In other words, just as Samuel rebuked Saul for witchcraft, people that try to substitute works for the righteousness of Christ are likewise involved in witchcraft, as he sets out here. Who hath bewitched you? Who hath bewitched you? So the problem, though the Galatians were at fault, the, the bulk of the problem was, or the bulk of the condemnation, I guess, would be better to say, was to those who had bewitched them. In other words, the false teachers. The false teachers. You remember when Paul, excuse me, James said, in his third chapter, verse 1, I believe, Be not many masters, for they shall receive the greater judgment. In other words, those who teach are held more accountable than those who hear. And this warning for believers and congregations it's the same for today because we should not be led astray from the truth. It is essential that you know the truth and that you contend for the truth. It's not popular. It's not popular. We all individually and collectively need to take heed how we stand lest we fall as stated in 1 Corinthians 10.12. I thought Luther had a good comment here. He said, Wherefore the natural vices that were in us before we received faith do still remain in us after we have received faith, saving that now they are subdued to the Spirit, which hath the upper hand to keep them under, and they rule not, yet not without great conflict. In other words, uh, besetting sins of each one of us, uh, oftentimes that we have before we're converted, we still have to fight them after we're converted, but we don't give in to them after we're converted like we did before because we have the Spirit of God that works in us to will and to do. And remember that Hebrews 12.1 talks about our besetting sin. What is your besetting sin? Do you know? Have you ever given it into consideration? Now, as we said before, we say again, the truth of the crucifixion of Christ had been set forth among them previously. This is what Paul said. And Paul knew very well that they had had the truth of the gospel preached to them. I think it's very likely that Paul was the one that first preached the truth of the gospel to them. But uh, if some wanted to argue that, I wouldn't argue too much. I'll just let him be wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> no. no, seriously. Uh, I wouldn't argue too much, argue over that. But Paul knew either way that the truth had been preached to them. Without question. Without question. And what does that tell us? That tells us again 
that we not only ought to know the truth and that we are commanded to know the truth, that, but that we also can know that we know the truth provided that we study the Scriptures truthfully. Study the Scriptures truthfully. Like I said, the Galatians did not have a gospel preached to them. They had the gospel preached to them. Not just a gospel. Not just a gospel. And you know that we live in a society. We could just uh, talk about our own community. Or our own county or state or country without having to go throughout the whole world how many different gospels are there being preached how many different different denominations are there <clears throat> you probably didn't know it but uh I bought a book uh, that was printed in the 60s, early in my ministry of the denominations of the United States. And I think I bought a, a, a second copy. If I didn't, I, I saw the second copy. <coughs> a few years later, and it had grown. But there were over a hundred different kinds of Baptists alone. Now think about that. But of all of the all of the preaching that goes on, there's only one that is right. Now either all of the Gospels are wrong or one is right. All of us could be wrong. I don't believe I'm wrong. I believe that I have the Gospel. There was an individual that used to be a, 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 used to attend here as a member that left because not because they were mad or anything of that nature but they wanted to be around people more of their age and I told this individual I said no we may not have a wife for you we not, may not have people of your age attending here but I said there's one thing that we have here that the others do not. And that's the gospel. And that's the most important thing. We're to forsake father and mother, brother and sister and husband and wife, even our own selves for the gospel's sake. We don't have the right to compromise on the gospel. We don't have the right to make things easier. And this individual knows that we have the gospel. Because I've talked to them since then. And they uh, talk to me about the things that, that we believe and how that, that is the truth and how some of the other places he attended, they're not always holding the line straight. Bewitched. Maybe brethren, but bewitched. And if we're not careful, we can be bewitched. Christ is not 
a would-be Savior. Jesus Christ came into this world to save His people from their sins. And His people are not just Jews. His people consist of Jews, but it consists of Gentiles, as we've seen here in reading this chapter today. His people are those who have faith. If we have faith, like Abraham, we're children of Abraham. We read that. And how is it that one has faith? It's a gift of God. Man doesn't conjure it up himself. And we'll stress this more and more. Christ did not come to be a good example, though He is a good example. The best example. <coughs> he didn't come to make salvation possible. He didn't come to try to save. When He gave up the ghost and said it is finished, He had accomplished what He came to do. He had accomplished what He came to do. Evidently, set forth means that it was clearly written. It's like putting a sign up. You know, somebody will put up a sign sometimes in supermarkets and on the telephone poles and trees and things of that nature. Uh, no trespassing. You know, on a tree or something like that. They usually have it in big bold letters so people can easily see it. Going down the road at 50 and 60 miles an hour, you can see that and read it. As the Old Testament prophet said that we could uh, clearly see why we're running. Jesus Christ has been evidently clearly set forth. And I want to make it as clear as I can that Jesus Christ accomplished what He came to do. And any other than that is not the Gospel. If you have to do anything, walk the aisle. I remember uh, several years ago a man that had been in the Southern Baptist uh, and came to the doctrines of grace, and he started preaching the doctrines of grace, and uh, people were opposing him. He finally got run out. But uh, someone asked him one time, said, well, if you don't walk the aisle, how can you get anybody saved if they don't walk the aisle? That's what people think, walking the aisle. Some think you have to be baptized. Baptism is important. And I believe God's children will be baptized unless they're providentially hindered. You don't have any New Testament believer that was not baptized other than the thief on the cross. And if he could have gotten down, I believe he would have been baptized. But you don't see any New Testament believer other than the thief. And he was, he was providentially hindered. There were no dry land Baptists in the New Testament. No such thing as an unbaptized Baptist. But anyway, we'll get to baptism uh, later on in this chapter, as you notice when we read that. But Christ was evidently set forth. Clearly, clearly set forth. A.T. Robertson said of this, This last idea is found in several papyri, that's ancient documents that they found, as in the case of a father who posted a proclamation that he would no longer be responsible for his son's debts. You know, sometimes 
I don't know whether they, they do it today or not, but used to, people would put ads in the newspaper uh, if there was a, a divorce or a separation or something of that nature or in the process, a man would might put in the paper that he's no longer responsible for the debts of such and such, and sometimes even for children. Knowing the truth of the gospel, as the Galatians did, and the truth of the gospel is justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. The, the very importance of justification. And knowing the truth of the gospel that had been preached to the Galatians is an argument that Paul preached the gospel to them. And like I said, if someone else preached it, then they knew the truth of the gospel. They knew the truth of the gospel. Peter indicates that possibly Paul preached to the Galatians. Because the first epistle of Peter was written to Pontius, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia. Peter had written to them. And he, write, he wrote to them again in his second epistle. And even in his second epistle, he talked about Paul's preaching. And the Galatians would have known something about Paul's preaching, evidently. Verse 2, this only what I learn of you, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Now, receive ye the Spirit. I don't believe that this is talking about regeneration. As we said earlier in this message and as we said earlier in studying chapter 1 more particularly in chapter 2 about the principle of faith versus the principle of works and we followed that and, and got that from Romans 3.27 let me read Romans 3.27 To refresh our remembering our, our remembrance. Wherefore where is boasting then it is excluded? By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. There are two laws or two principles. That's how the word law is used there. Two principles. You're either saved by the principle of works or by the principle of faith. And as we pointed out previously, I'm not going to go back and re-preach -pre -pre all of that. The principle of faith is the person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. And just as it's talking about the principle of faith versus the principle of law, here, I think, in verse 2, this receive ye the Spirit is the principle of Spirit or the principle of faith or the principle of the New Testament economy. In other words, Verse 23 of the same chapter, which we'll say more when we come to it. But before faith came, 
In verse 19, till the seed should come. Well, we know who the seed is because verse 16 tells us the seed is Christ. In other words, he's talking about the economy of the New Testament that could be summed up in the word faith, be summed up with Christ, be summed up with Spirit as we see there in verse 2. Before the Spirit, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. He's not talking about regeneration, I don't believe. But he's talking about the New Testament administration or the principle of the Gospel. (coughs) Too many insist that the initial reception of the Holy Spirit whereby one receives divine life or the new birth is simply by hearing and preaching and the preaching of the gospel. And that this gospel, when they hear it, this gospel regenerates them and produces faith in them. The gospel doesn't produce faith. The gospel reveals faith. God gives faith. We must keep that in mind. God gives faith. We'll say more about this as we go. Since man fell in sin in Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he's born into this world, he's born dead in sin. Romans 3 and 5, 12. Well, Romans, really, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then Romans 5, 12, a great summary. Tells us that man is born naturally dead in sin. Well, if he's dead in sin, how can he believe? How can he have faith? He can't. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. Well, I need to stop here because if I try to uh, develop this a little bit more, uh, we'll run. Well, it should be good, I think, if we just stop here and come back and take up here this afternoon. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and ask that You would more and more open our understanding that we might truly proclaim salvation sovereignly by your grace and your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.